Welcome to the Hawkeye Psychic Podcast. And you're very welcome back to the Hawkeye Psychic Rugby Podcast with your host Mark Kennedy. Uh, joined again this week by Liam Abreen. Liam, how are things? Great, Mark. Some great uh, end of season finals at the weekend for us. Absolutely. Plenty of drama. So, ladies and gentlemen, we'll look at Stormers' victory over the Bulls in Cape Town. 18-13 in the inaugural URC Grand Final. Leicester Tigers uh, beating Saracens in a cliffhanger. Uh, Eddie Jones under a little bit of pressure after a record loss to the Barbarians for England last weekend. And also we look at some contract news uh, surfacing around Connacht Rugby. And Joe Joyce, second row, uh, committing to Connacht the season after next. Liam, we may start with the URC Grand Final in Cape Town. I suppose what were your impressions and overall feelings in terms of that final between the Stormers and the Bulls? Oh, that was just um, a cracking game. Yeah, there was, there was real intensity from from the very first minute. And it was kind of an, an ebb and flow. So no team dominated completely, like, uh, the game. But, like, they had their kind of, it was almost like quarters, like, is what I felt like. So, like, you know, the first quarter would have been the Bulls. And then the next quarter would have been Stormers. And then in the second half, it kind of flipped again that it was... Bulls again the start of the second half and then Stormers so yeah it was it was a cracking game altogether yeah it was, it was a very explosive start from the Bulls I remember a question here Liam last week in the podcast regarding the logistics the travel exertions of the Bulls but they never really showed it from minute one and uh, I suppose a very impressive attacking mall Grobelar again with a, a very expansive line break setting up Forster after three minutes. It was quite the start of the final, and it probably needed it um, to kind of get the nerves in, out of the system of both teams. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, the Bulls laid on the marker. Isn't that what essentially happened? Yeah. In the very first minute, they got their mall running, they got a penalty, kick to the corner, mall again. And I think the key thing that happened here almost by mistake was the, the mall kind of broke off. The first three or four yeah. guys in the mall went ahead. The Stormers players were like lulled into following them. And suddenly your man was gone, Grobbler. And to be fair, it was a brilliant break and an incredible offload to Vorster. Like just the skill this guy has is incredible, you know. And that was that was that was certainly a brilliant start. And then, you know, I mean, they, they had other kicks to the corner as well. Um, turnovers basically kept the Stormers in that in, in the very first half of the first half you know uh, we had Dean Faree with Evan Roos with key turnovers there I think you know they the, the key thing for me in the first half was that the Bulls had attacking scrums and they simply didn't make use of them they they either like basically it was turnovers or kicked the ball away you know they could have really kicked on more and built up some some points I think the key thing was they went for the kicks to the corner, I suppose, after that very first minute. And they should have actually just actually kicked the penalties. You know, again, it's it's, it's easy to see in, in hindsight. But like a, 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 a kind of a team like the Bulls can defend a sort of a lead or like 13, 14, 15 by lead that they can defend that easily. I suppose he didn't have the Stormers too, that, that Manny Libok, you know, he had a, a poor miss. I suppose it was difficult enough from from his position, but then he he came good. He got a penalty in the very last minute, and a seven three. I felt in the second half, the Stormers had more in them. 
Yeah, I totally agree, Liam. Particularly your point in terms of those attacking penalties that the Bulls had. I mean, grand finals are there to be won. You know, you put your 3-6-9-12 on the board. Maybe one, maybe attacking set to kind of see if Maul was going to be successful again. But maybe a little bit of pragmatism from Jake White. Maybe the, the players on the pitch, you know, may have been a little bit missed there. I think the Stormers, to be fair, they defended resolutely, really. But they've shown their resilience throughout the playoffs, really. Edinburgh Rugby had their moments, but they regrouped superbly, the Stormers, uh, in the quarterfinals, semifinals against Ulster. We all know what happened in terms of being down to 14 players. So the resiliency and determination and the defensive re- um, sets, when it matters, are were quite phenomenal back row, I think, wise from the Stormers. Absolutely superb. I think they were probably a little bit fortunate to just be going in at halftime, 7-3 up, given the territory, given the effort and the exertions that the Bulls had made in that opening period. And as you say, not tacking on points from a Bulls perspective was probably there to bite them. And quite early on in the second half here, Liam, we knew the Stormers would come back into this contest, but my God, it was a an incredible opening, really, given the Stormers, I think, maybe changed a little bit of tack here as well. Maybe they were a little bit conservative in the opening half, but they came out a completely different side. Whatever was said at halftime, they came a, a completely different animal in terms of their pack exchanges, the physicality, but also creating a little bit of width that maybe the Bulls now, uh, after all the efforts of the opening period, couldn't really handle. Yeah, that was the key. I mean, they, they, they probably always had that more in them than, than, than the Bulls to play that expensive game. The thing that I liked too was the likes of Halland. He was able to vary the game. He really had good touch finders, really good kick throughs as well. You know, and yeah. um, that that if the if it wasn't done to put the ball through the hands, that he was able to to get them pretty much down into the ten meter line for uh, the Bulls. And that's the way it transpired in the second half at the start there, where um, Halland kicked through. It was carried over by the Bulls, so it was again going to be attack and scrum for the Stormers and so so good from that then uh, we had Evan Roos going over like it, it was some effort by him to go over a right but um, I think it has to be questioned that he was on his knees he dropped his knees and then dropped his on his body and then he kind of got up again to place the ball so there's maybe a bit of controversy about that what do you think? A little bit I would think you know you've seen these ones not given really Liam in regular season URC games throughout the season so grand final you want to be getting all your decisions spot on so you know you have to trust Andrew Brace he's officials making the right call but it was certainly a momentum changer but I suppose leading back to that Roos try as well I thought the pack for the Stormers probably reiterating what I'm saying here in terms of front football uh, 4E as well was getting great kind of quick rook ball here whereas maybe in the opening period like the Kosia and the Bulls were maybe slowing down ball just a tad so to be fair, scores given here. Uh, Roos uh, scores and game in the melting pot. Maybe the Bulls now for maybe 10-15 minutes after that try. Maybe this is where they lost the final. Then you had the yellow card on 56 minutes from Hendricks. Any arguments there in terms of that uh, yellow card? No, no, definitely. I mean, I mean, to be fair, Hendricks is a tall guy <laughs> for a centre. Which, you know, you could argue if he was a normal centre, he'd be two or three inches smaller. The shoulders would be a lot less as well. Like, yeah. So, like, it's almost as if, he, if he's standing straight, <laughs> your man is going to get his, his head into his shoulder naturally, you know. So, yeah, but he was. I mean, it, it was one of those. It was clear. 
clear and obvious. Uh, and as you said, like then, you know, a few minutes later, basically, we had Venter going over the try. And for the first time in the game, Stormers were actually ahead. It was a very impressive mall, I thought. But again, the director from Brace, you know, once. And then I think the Bulls maybe kind of hesitated a little bit, thinking that maybe, but the mall continued. But I mean, take nothing away from Venter's finish. I mean, the power of the man to get over, uh, given three to four Bulls players close on the line. It was a phenomenal effort, and I mean, the Cape Town natives were literally uh, in ecstasy at that stage. 57 minutes, and uh, you thought then, kind of with the Bulls, maybe it was looking a bit ominous, but direct running, maybe creating that penalty opportunity on 63 minutes uh, for Smith, who I thought was clinical again, kicking off the tee to keep his side well in touch here. And I thought the last 20 minutes was just phenomenally fascinating, just in terms of the Stormers and the Bulls. Game opened up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We, we we saw the the Stormers very much on the front foot in that time. And um, Sergey Peterson, I remember like basically almost going for the corner, and um, he passed inside. And if any Stormers player got the ball there, they were over. That was that was game over. That was I think that was crucial as well. That was yeah. a crucial uh, period there. And you know, like in fairness to Stormers, you know, we kind of talked last week about. The Bulls really, their kicking game being very fundamental to how they work. But I thought Stormers to man that back three, they won some key aerial battles down the stretch as well, creating that territory for the Stormers. And I think one of those key aerial battle wins created the territory for Libbuck's drop goal. I thought that was a very smart move from Libbuck. You know, you've seen from the Bulls' perspective how when they had their period of dominance, they literally kind of went went for broke, whereas Libbuck. Cup final, it's a grand final here. Nobody's going to remember the extravagant pass here. Let's get the points on the board and start protecting our lead. And after 74, 75 minutes, 18, 13 at that stage. And uh, to be fair to the Bulls, they did get an opportunity. But again, maybe a little bit of indecision in terms of the Bulls, in terms of their attacking strategy right at the end. What do you think there, Liam, in terms of the Yeah, Bulls? I mean, I mean, they, they, they had a line-out They had a line all in 78 minutes. Like, is that somehow <laughs> they fecked up, like, you know? Especially, which is weird when you have the likes of Bismarck Duplessis at the back, like, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. so they had at least, you know, that usually would you'd indicate the very least they can get his, his uh, like a, a penalty kick to the corner to work off. No, I mean, the, the, the Stormers held out and uh, there was, there was it, it was actually, you know, in the end, they, they got the turnover and uh, kick out and fully deserved. But like Libok, I must say about Libok, whatever you say about his goal kicking, which is quite poor, he has bottle, you know, Massive. as a player. Mm. We saw in a semi-final taking an actually, you know, quite a difficult kick. And here again in the, in the final, he, he stood up. So, um, you know, that massive credit to him as well. And I, I thought that as the game went on, the, the Stormers front row, the the power that they brought through in the front row was incredible. Kitschoff and uh, Matt Herb, just sensational altogether. Oh my God, they were just phenomenal from start to finish. It really kind of bodes well for South Africa and Razzie going into a World Cup year to see those guys kind of top of the ground. You know, they're scrummaging. Even their work rate outside of the set pieces is just phenomenal altogether. But um, I thought it was quite apt with the Stormers that another steal right at the end from a breakdown won the game and. Looking at the stat here in terms of that back row uh, that start for Stormers, 29 carries, 99 metres gained. I think that tells an awful lot of the story. Um, again, the Bulls kind of struggled 
for parity, particularly in uh, collisions. And I think Evan Roos and his colleagues there, particularly in the Stormers, were, I think, just superior on the day and, you know, a key focal point of the game. Now, the Bulls had Arenze and Tambue went 19 carries for 134 metres. I mean, Tambue had some sensational runs, particularly in that opening period on another day when their periods of dominance may have yielded tries. But I think take nothing away to the Bulls. Grobler as well with 14 tackles, 23 metres gained. A very high action-packed performance as well. I think it was just a superb grand final. It was a fitting finale to the inaugural URC grand final that really hinged on the last play, really, uh, Liam. And again, as we said last week, the South African teams have elevated the quality and standard of the competition and it's up to everyone else to follow suit. Yeah, absolutely. Is I mean, look, like a rising tide helps all boats, isn't it? Um, and, and But to be honest with you, you'd, you'd also be looking at it kind of questioning, can the Irish sides honestly <laughs> play to that intensity like, you know? Um, we, we saw even Leinster couldn't ultimately do that at home, you know? And then you'd certainly be looking at other sides like, like Ulster and, and Munster. So I don't know, but it it does bode well for next season that um, teams are going to have to basically start strong from the very beginning to have Absolutely. any chance, and that's in, that includes Munster as well. But you know, I mean, met a, a South African guy in, in in a cafe here in Limerick there on Saturday, and we kind of both agreed that ultimately, you know, we got the South Africans and the Kiwis got the Aussies, and <laughs> who really is going to turn out better in terms of competition-wise after all this? Well, at least we know physicality stakes-wise where we need to get up to, particularly with World Cup 2023, but there's no harm in this competition being injected with new talent, new blood. I mean, I can only see the cells, she see sharks, and also the lines as well, improving dramatically next season as well, uh, Liam. So really, it's really up to... Like, the Irish provinces will regroup and will come again, but it's that physicality of the South African teams, particularly in the playoffs, that I, I do remember and do recall the Stormers when they came to Toman Park, you know, uh, that opening round for the first 25, 30 minutes, they gave an exhibition of rugby. And granted, Munster won on the day, but I think that was the, the taster. That was the preview in terms of what South African teams were going to offer for this league. Now, granted, you can say maybe started the league towards before Christmas was a bit hit and miss from the South African teams as they adapted to the new league and teams. But by God, since after Christmas, Lame, these South African teams have just basically gone on a roll. I know there's been significant home stands, but my God, they've just literally delivered. All those four teams, South African teams, really went on amazing runs. And to be fair to these teams, there will be plenty of motivation to uh, dethrone the Stormers next season. And, I suppose everyone should be forewarned, particularly the Irish, Scottish and Welsh regions, that the South African teams are going to be maybe elevating their performance even more next season. Yeah, <laughs> I wait for the English and the French to get a bit of a shock because they absolutely will. That's one thing that's going to be guaranteed. My God, it is. But, you know, I mean, also, I think there would be rivalry next season. I think that would be good. I think, you know, the the likes of the Bulls and Leinster will be a rivalry Stormers and Ulster, you know, and and Munster eventually will have a rivalry as well with, with all these teams, you know. Yeah, I think even Munster with the Bulls as well, just given the connections, you know, with the Van Grands of this world, you know, Erasmus as well, coming from that area, Connacht as well, the Stormers as well. I know Jake White wasn't too complimentary of Connacht, 
So, I mean, you can create the little rivalries here. Definitely Stormers Ulster is definitely a marquee one for next season. Can't wait for that game to kind of happen, maybe hopefully early in the season. But yeah, I'd, I would agree with you, Liam. I mean, it's really breeding new life into that. And for European Cup, particularly with the French and English sides, best to look there because <laughs> if you're going to get the likes of the Bulls or the Stormers, you know, particularly in November, round one, that'll create a new dimension to the Champions Cup and also Challenge Cup where you'll have the Lions and also there as well. I think that'll be significant in terms of the quality that the South African teams will bring. Yeah, yeah, you've got actually have two South African teams in in the in Challenge Cup. Yeah, the Lions and the Cheetahs. Yeah, 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 interesting, yeah. You know, which is great. I think it's great all round, and it's really up to everyone. I know Leinster were probably licking their wounds last week along with Ulster, but I think it's for everyone to literally kind of regroup, see how they go, recruit wisely, coach well. And see how it goes in the preseason, and we're only a few weeks away from the new fixture list as well, unbelievably. But yeah, congratulations, Stormers. I think a thoroughly deserved URC champion. And for the Bulls, you know, it's been a magnificent season. As Jake White has said, literally, they've been in playoff mode. This is probably the start of the calendar year. So, in the, no disgrace in the final performance, you know, fine margins. And they were just on the wrong side, but I suppose their victory in the RDS in Leinster was a superb result just given the circumstances. So, no, great, great URC campaign, debut season in the books, and we'll look forward to next season with interest. Liam, we'll look to the Leicester Tigers and Saracens in the Gallagher Premiership final in Twickenham. And I suppose this may be a case study for any rugby team on how fortunes can change so swiftly. And the 2019-2020 season, Leicester Tigers finished uh, a meagre 11th place. 2020-21, they finished 6th. And this season, courtesy of late Freddie Burns, drop a goal. They're 15-12 winners over Saracens and have won the Gallery Premiership after uh, being top of the regular season standings. A magnificent achievement for Leicester Tigers and for Steve Borwick, the head coach. Yeah, congrats to Tigers. I think most Munster fans, like, kind of, you know, always look out for, for, for Tigers results as well, you know. There's a great um, kind of bond and, and rivalry between them down through the years in fourth in the European Cup. And yeah, I mean that's that's one thing when you look at the the meteoric rebirth of Leicester. <laughs> we need to get someone over there and just like you know in the summer and just see what has happened, or because uh, a lot of the the I suppose the great teams of the past in Europe, you know, just they're gone, aren't they? Like you know Cardiff and Bath and Northampton haven't been anywhere in years. So like you know it's 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 uh, it's tremendous to see um, such a, a well-run club, a club with such tradition and a kind of a identity, clear identity, have uh, have have come back. And yeah, again again cracking game and and, and real to and fro. And I guess the fact the fact of the matter is that Leicester got two tries in the first half. But but you know. We also saw, the, I suppose, the the rebirth of Billy Von Epola, uh, which which like was uh, incredible to see as well. There was nothing there was nothing in it in that first half, even at that. Um, I totally agree with you, Liam. I think it was a complete and utter mindset change from everyone top to bottom. We've called for this on this podcast regarding Monster Rugby, in terms of a root and branch review of everything that you do as a sporting club. And Steve Borwick went in there. When the club was in absolute dire straits, let's be per- brutally honest, previous seasons of poor recruitment, 
head coaches coming and going fairly quickly. I can think of poor Gordon Murphy when we were in Tome Park there a few years ago when uh, Leicester Tigers were kept scoreless by Munster Rugby and it wasn't really an effort from Munster Rugby to keep Leicester Tigers scoreless. They were that poor, but it was in a massive job for Steve Borwick and his management staff to really come in and transform this club. But I think it says an awful lot about Steve Borwick that people bought into his ethos, his philosophy fairly quickly and, you know, really reaped the rewards. You could see the progression last season from 11th to 6th and the season as well. Granted, they were beaten by Leinster, uh, particularly in the quarterfinals. But I think to be fair to Leicester, they did have a go at uh, Leinster, particularly in that second half. So they did show potential. But going back to this final, it was a very, I thought it was very exciting from start to finish, really. Likes of Stewart and Ashton, back three-wise from Leicester Tigers, were always providing an outlet and keeping the Saracens' kind of defence pretty honest. I mean, I'm thinking of the Liebenberg try, particularly the lead-up, Stuart and Ashton, the interchange of passes there, creating the, the pack um, set-up for Liebenberg's try and Andres' try then. Great defensive line speed from Leicester Tigers to uh, charge down Farrell on Farrell's uh, kick. And again, the blindside move from the scrum <laughs> had very kind of a la Peter Stringer about it, didn't it? Munster and uh, Biritz, uh, just Saracen's defensive cover, not really anticipating it. So, I mean, magnificent efforts there from Leicester, but this Saracen team, the 3 6 9 12, I mean, you know, they were, and it, as you say, they weren't without their moments. Billy Vanapola was absolutely the best player on the pitch by country mile, 25 carries, 100 metres. There were some magnificent line breaks particularly in that uh, opening period, and maybe should have had a bit more for the Saracens. But uh, Saracens always stayed in there. They always stayed in the fight. And, uh, you know, with the boot of Owen Farrell there, you know, they were attacking on scores. And I suppose the Alla Davis incident, there was two kind of maybe shoulder charge incidents there during the 80 minutes. Uh, what were your kind of feelings on that? There were two yellow cards issued uh, by Wayne Barnes. Uh, any difference in terms of interpretation there? Yeah, well, no, I mean, it's, it, it, there was already early doors in, in the first half. Um, yeah, Davis, um, we had, a, a, yeah, sending off a, kind of a shoulder charge. And yeah, I, I think I think that was fair, you know. I, I, I definitely would have to say that. No real complaints there. Um, if we're talking about in the second half, yeah, I, I would say that was also a yellow. Uh, yeah, that was, that was quite a dangerous tackle as well, really, you know. Yeah. I suppose Barnes was consistent about it anyway. And Elliot Daly as well, a monster kick from him on 30 minutes as well. And it kind of really did set up the crescendo, didn't it, uh, Liam? You know, uh, with that yellow card, there was a penalty to the Saracens. Owen Farrell attacked it over 12-all. But with 14 players, um, it did show the determination, the resiliency of Leicester Tigers that has always been there, Liam. And I thought it was a magnificent setup from the pack to really create that opportunity for Freddie Burns, who had come in very early on for George Ford and uh, delivered on the big stage. You know, Freddie Burns may be accused of being very inconsistent at times, but my God, in one of the most important games of his career, he stood up massively well. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, I mean, in all the time I've been watching rugby, that probably is the best drop goal, considering that he had the least amount of, of of time. Like he, when he got the ball, there was five or six Saracens guys coming in his face. You know what I mean? Like, to be fair, people talk about drop goals, but like 
they're always relatively like in front of the post or the guy is all the time in the world, you know, to kick it. That pressure was incredible. So, I mean, that is definitely the greatest moment of Freddie Burns' life, that's for sure, in yeah. a rugby sense. Because there was no safety foul for him because Barnes was not going to ping for offsides for Saracens here. This was all down on the kick. It was all down on the kicker to execute. And, you know, it was a... Burns, maybe, bashfully, was kind of kind of deflected tension. But as you say, it was a clutch moment for a ball club. You know, this will do absolute wonders for Leicester Tigers going forward, attracting even more quality players into that ball club. And again, Steve Borwick is only starting here. You know, you can definitely see him really building something magnificently special. I think you saw with the Leicester Leinster game, particularly that quarter final, that there's still work to do to get to that echelon of European clubs. But I think this is a massive result for Leicester Tigers. And as I say, it's a great case study for any teams that are former glories that this is quite possible if you have um, a very assured head coach, players buy into the ethos, the philosophy of the game, and anything is possible. Well, yeah, the thing is, the thing is, Mark, I mean, like you look at Leicester players and you could look at Munster players and, and squad and, and certainly you could argue Munster have on paper superior players without a shadow of a doubt and, and more big name guys. But what he's gotten out of guys who, who are clearly very good players, but like not top of the range internationals, you know, um, I think of Tommy Reffel uh, at, at seven. Uh, I think of, you know, I think of um, Liebenberg, you know, again, not really a household name, is he, you know, even Jasper Visa, like, you know, is uh, why, why he, he's a South African springbok, you know, he wouldn't be a huge name. So there's, there's, there's lots of guys there who have played above themselves, almost, you could say, this season. And as you say, like, when you have that def- definition as well, when you have uh, a coach like Bortwick there at the helm as well, bringing it all together, absolutely, it shows that it works. Just brutal honesty, I think, Liam. Everyone trusts each other to deliver at all times. And you'd have that player's back, you know, if things don't go well. I think that has been the hallmarks of this Leicester Tigers team. I mean, they finished regular season top of the table, you know, and maybe it lends ourselves. We kind of asked on Facebook in terms of uh, any questions that folks would have. And Limerick FM's uh, Dan O'Brien from What's the Score, Limerick City Community Radio, actually highlighted a great stat in terms of Premiership 2021-2022 season. In terms of the kicking game, uh, now we kind of say that the kicking game is a little bit of a negative enigma you could say in terms of uh of modern day rugby but my god you see the stats here from 2021-2022 premiership season leicester tigers are topping the total kicks in meters kicked 871 total kicks meters kicked 27,470 closely followed by saracens 726 total kicks 21,261 and so forth you could also say in terms of any top ranked sides really that your kicking game is your bread and butter. It's your foundation stone. But I suppose, Liam, probably a question that Dan was probably asking is, why is it so in vogue at the moment, I, I would imagine, just in terms of the use of the kick, particularly in open play? Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you need a good kicking game in modern rugby because sometimes you're getting the ball in poor in poor position where you pass into the guy next to you isn't, isn't an option. It also, against these mass rush defences, 
it gives you a great opportunity. Even the, the fact now you have a 50-22. Yeah. If you have a good winger with a good old kick on him, you know, a 50-22 is an incredible option for, for attacking-wise, you know. So so you have all these um, these reasons, I suppose, for, for, for taking kicks, you know. I suppose, oh, yeah, ball is slowed down, you know, by by good flankers. You need to kick away, kicking to gain to gain territory as well. Um, so the, you know, I mean, I suppose the key is with most sides I see is they they have good kicking games. Irish teams just kick the ball, Gary Owen into the air, and that's it. And don't chase the ball even, you know. So like everyone else has good kicking games, we don't. That's another thing as well. Again, exit strategy-wise, but all the top teams do it. You know, we think of New Zealand being synonymous with free-flowing offloading game, but again, their bread and butter is to exit strategy, to create territory. A good kick game off your back three, in particular your 10, is invaluable to create that territory, to set up the attacking kind of environs to release your runners. I can think of, you know, even Cass and Montpellier are going to be in a top 14 final this weekend, Liam. And these are two teams that have an exquisite kick game, open kick game, particularly Cass. You know, we've seen them in full effect when playing Munster in the Champions Cup. They're very good, strategic kickers. Again, it forced errors of an opponent here. If you're not able to handle that, that does create field position. And uh, that was a fascinating stat that was thrown up here. And even more so when you look down the table at the Premiership 2021-2022, a team like Exeter Chiefs that you thought maybe very pack-orientated and was very kind of, I thought, kick-focused, only 488 total kicks for 15,123 metres kicked. So, I mean, it really just tells the tale of the tape here, as you say, Liam, you know, if you have a very efficient kick game, you're going to be competing pretty well in postseason, for that matter. You look across the board, even in the World Cup coming up, the top teams will be the ones that have a very good kick game. And again, it's the South Africa's, even France to a certain extent, Liam. You know, you think of DuPont, Entomac. Jaminet. Yeah, Jaminet. You know, you're thinking of the back three there. They're all well capable of kicking a ball, 50-22s, having that threat. I mean, 50-22 has been a very exciting feature of rugby union for this past season. And again, I think it's elevated the kicking game of some sides, as you say yourself, uh, Liam. Maybe the Irish provinces have to really kind of look at that a little bit. Box kicking alone is not going to be sufficient to really compete with the top, top teams. And maybe that is something in the off-season where the Irish provinces can maybe improve a little bit upon. But I think from that perspective, I think, yeah, the kick game's in vogue. It will remain in vogue, you know, in terms of uh, how it's used. And I think... It's fascinating to see that the top teams do excel in that skill set. I think it was very fitting in terms of how this game ended, really. There was nothing in between these two ball clubs. And again, next season, they're probably the form teams in the Gallagher Premiership, maybe along with uh, Harlequins to a certain extent. So uh, congratulations to Leicester Tigers on that uh, triumph. Then 24 hours later in Twickenham, uh, Eddie Jones's England entertained the Barbarians. I suppose a friendly... <laughs> fixture could you say before England embark on the summer tour to Australia but if you saw the UK media broadsheets uh, directly after this game again for Eddie Jones it puts a little bit more pressure on him on a record loss 
to the Barbarians. I know, Liam, you'd watched the game along myself. What were your overall feelings on this? I think it maybe exposes a bit in terms of squad depth for England. But Freddie Jones, is there a massive pressure heading into this Australian tour? Yeah, there is. I, I mean, I mean, I suppose that, that I, I don't think, to be honest with you, as bad as the loss was against the Babas. I think it's more a case of, look, there's been no real progression there. This season, it was a very lucky third spot, you know, considering they lost to France, Scotland and ourselves. And then fourth the season before. So there's, there's, there's no real progression there with England. They do have some smashing players available too, you know. I suppose the fact that there's some really brilliant young players who are not playing to potential. And then there was guys who were definitely prematurely dropped. You know, we think of the the, the, the funny Polo guys. And even to be fair, Danny Kerr, you know, who's recalled as well. He seems to be going for a game, Anithma to England, which is basically, even though you have good forwards, to kind of pretty much ignore that, um, this forward orientated game, and to go for his free flowing game that the players themselves almost seem un- uncomfortable in playing as well, um, with no clear outline on the pitch of what they should be doing. So that's probably the most worrying thing for for England fans to be looking at. Um, myself, like I could, I, I would look at from looking at just kind of a brief parts of the game. England just um, a bit, bit clueless. I suppose the 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 um, Babas players, a lot of French guys, so they were had gelled before and they knew their style of play, so that probably explains something as well. Indeed, like Damien Pinot had the freedom of the park in Twickenham at times, you know, a class above in the back three exchanges, but I suppose there were so many things wrong with this performance from England. Now, you can say it was probably the first game of this kind of summer tour series, but again, there were some fundamental issues here, particularly around um, rook defence. How many times do we see barbarian guys really evade lack of coverage around the rooks? It really did kind of spill over. Johnny May gets uh, sin bin for a deliberate knock-on and 17 minutes that creates the penalty try. I thought Olivion's uh, intercept on 23 minutes. Yeah, Randall, scrum half, has opportunity to tackle, but again, it was kind of a meek effort from the scrum half to get back maybe that's kind of prompted Danny Kerr to come back in here uh, to a certain extent like Marcus Smith did have good moments in terms of attacking sense but again England seemed to tire pretty rapidly here particularly in the last 20 minutes and this is all played predominantly with 14 players from the Barbarians after Skelton got sent off uh, for that shoulder hit um, so I mean to concede the 52 points here uh, Liam it's a bit of an eye-opener for any supporters of England in Twickenham. I mean, you should have to that game on Sunday afternoon. But I think from a bigger deal, I think it really does expose squad depth issues, particularly the, the fledgling, the prospects that were coming in, probably lauded a little bit by B, BT Sports to a certain extent. Got her premiership guys that needed to get their chance, but they got a bit of a reality check in terms of the levels that are required in Test Match Rugby. And I think there are serious concerns for England going down to Australia now, given that performance. Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, uh, to lose by 31 points to the Babas, who really don't often win nowadays um, when they're playing the other international sides. The thing is, too, you could say Australia maybe are possibly resurgent at this point. They kind of put it up to, to the New Zealand teams in Super Rugby this year. In terms of the Brumbies, they have one of the best teams now in Super Rugby. 
So yeah, it's it's not going to get any easier for them. And if and it could be very well possible they lose, you know, two games in a test series, I think he could be gone. It's getting to that stage too where he's where Eddie kind of comes in for a few years to a team, really makes a difference, and then things just start to fall apart. And that's happened with his own native Australia. In fact, every other coaching stint that he's had. So I think that's kind of happening now with England. I think it's a key one for him. He, he may not say that to the media, but he knows that international rugby test match coaches, they're, they're evaluated on the results. And really, the last 12 months have not been good enough from an England perspective. Coming into a World Cup 2023 cycle year, I think it's imperative for England to come back with a little bit of a vengeance here. Now, Australia, once they see the English jerseys, will be, the motivation will be pretty high on their side. And I think they're kind of coming on the upper curve. We'll see more of that, particularly in the rugby championship. A key time for England. They're recalling back to the likes of Binny Volopola and also Danny Kerr to a certain extent. I think that's probably an acknowledgement that the guys that, that were supposed to replace them are not quite up to mark here. And really looking towards 2023, I think Vanapola and also Danny Kerr are going to be, dare I say, fairly significant players. I think in terms of Ben Youngs as well. I know he's been rested for this tour. Looks like a kind of a key halfback for the likes of Marcus Smith and Owen Farrell going forward. Because I certainly don't see anything from a scrum half perspective coming through the ranks here that is really going to rival those guys. Yeah, yeah, I suppose, I suppose, yeah, there has been talk about young Harry Randall, all right, you know, he seems like maybe the best of the rest, I suppose you could call him, you know, to be fair, England always produce good scrum halves, whatever, what I knew their position, they always seem to have good scrum halves, but yeah, as you said, like, you know, some of the young lads who've come through haven't really stepped up to the level, I guess, you know, but like, again, when you come into an uncertain kind of a squad, as a young guy, doesn't doesn't quite help, does it, when you don't come into a, a winning squad with a, with a kind of winning mentality that England don't have at the moment. There's a very talk in the English media they want, the obviously guy is Sean Edwards. They want to get him in. They're, they're saying, well, immediately post-World Cup, but like, you know, <laughs> that could happen, that could happen a bit sooner as well, you know. But yeah, England are kind of, um, it's very funny. They're, they're of all the leading teams, you know, they're probably in the most uncertain state at this this time I think there's parallels with South Africa in the previous World Cup where they were a little bit in disarray 15 to 18 months out from the World Cup but then Erasmus took over took charge squad started to get galvanized now I suppose from England's perspective you have how many Leicester Tigers and Saracens contingent joining that England squad now these are proven test match operators so that will certainly evaluate and elevate their performance to a certain extent but I think this game can't be taken in isolation. I think it's just a case of Barbarians, as you said, just convening a few days beforehand. I know there was an awful lot of French contingent there. Thinking of Alexa Bougarets, um, Carbonell, guys like that. There were some exquisite kind of moves here when the shackles were completely off. Tonga as well was monster with ball in hand as well. But I think, uh, Liam, it's in terms of depth chart, in terms of naming that 2023 World Cup squad for England. Quite a few England prospects here certainly are not going to remember this fixture with any great memories, particularly if they're not being picked for a rugby 2023. This is probably the game that they've, uh, their hopes were probably dashed when it comes to selection, probably late 
in August, September of next year. So I think from that perspective, I think pressure is certainly on England. It's certainly on Eddie Jones to get this right. Martin Gleeson as well, I think from an attacking coach perspective, to galvanise a game plan between a very dynamic pack unit and I've, on paper looks a very good potential backline unit. Now Elliot Daly as well has been shut down for the season. Again, that may provide more opportunities for other players, but I think it's a it's going to be a very telling series here in uh, Australia for England and Eddie Jones. I suppose before we go here, uh, Liam, contract news coming from Connacht Rugby. Now, this is for the 2023-2024 season, but uh, Joe Joyce uh, will be joining the Western Province from uh, Bristol Bears. And from the Bristol Bears fan reaction and also to the video, this looks a very astute signing from Connacht Rugby for the season after next. Yeah, certainly is. I mean, look, obviously with that name, he, he is an Irish qualified uh, rugby player. He's played well over the, the century of games for Bristol. So he certainly is going to be a, a, um, a player that Connacht are going to have some serious kind of power to bring in. It's kind of unusual for me that, like, you know, they announced the signing now and he's going to come in a year's time. Look, he's in he's in a, a lock position, so that's something that I suppose Connacht are a bit light in locks as well. There's a bit of physicality there with Joe Joyce. Maybe this has been preempting something that we don't know about, but maybe is he on the radar of Andy Farrell and Mike Hath? Particularly those two guys are very kind of in the know in terms of Gallagher Premiership players. Joe Joyce does have an awful lot of physicality and abrasiveness about him, and I think it's somewhere an area of Ireland's play, particularly second row, that we need maybe a little bit more abrasiveness and physicality. And maybe he's been signed for that purpose. Just merely speculating. The other thing I would also say for Connacht Rugby, it's a great signing, but my fear here is if Joe Joyce is arriving to that ball club, who's going to be leaving that ball club at the end of next season as well? There might be an attritional here of maybe a particular second row from Connacht going. And uh, that could be a fascinating watch as well as the season progresses. But I think Joe Joyce, you know, he's interviewed with Bristol Bears. He's seen it with Bristol Bears climbing through the divisions, won a Challenge Cup. As you say, he wants to, the cherry on top winning the Gallagher Premiership here uh, with Bristol Bears uh, next season. But again, a guy that seems to be very authentic, a very work ethic based player, you know, that's going to be a good leader for Connacht Rugby on and off the pitch. Nothing but good vibes coming from that Joe Joyce uh, signing here. And, you know, it's a shame that probably couldn't have happened this season for pre-season, uh, really. But again, I think it's going to be a fascinating watch to see Joe Joyce and whether he kind of features in Andy Farrell's Ireland plans as well. Yeah, certainly. I mean, look, he's another person to come into the mix. We've already seen, you know, Joe McCarthy come from pretty much nowhere this season to potentially start in lock, I would argue, in one of the tests. So certainly Joe Joyce is another real prospect to have in the future. Massive, massive. And I suppose another news here, Joe, or um, Liam, um, Nick McCarthy's announcement this week, I mean, incredibly brave move from Nick McCarthy, you know, as a professional sportsman in Ireland, you know, coming out about his sexuality. Uh, any reactions there, Liam? Uh, Nick McCarthy's an outstanding scrum half, but I suppose a very brave move from Nick. And, uh, you know, I think we might see a more... Enhanced probably Nick McCarthy on the pitch after this announcement. Yeah, you, you'd imagine so that it was kind of a, a, a heavy burden to have to keep in place. So, yeah, like it looked good, good for him. 
Um, I, I think for for Irish rugby too. And if I'm not mistaken, he's the most kind of a high profile or big name player in Irish rugby to um to come out. So yeah, well done to him and makes things easier for everyone else, like doesn't it? Yeah, a complete trailblazer is Nick McCarthy. And I mean, he had a good stint with Munster Rugby there not too long ago as well. You know, an awful lot of Munster fans were sad to see him go. Um, you know, a quality footballer. Uh, given the opportunities to be afforded in Munster Rugby, and he continued that with Leinster. And I think the reaction of the Leinster Rugby fans, particularly head coach Leo Cullen, um, Stuart Lancaster, has been absolutely awesome. And, you know, w- well done to Nick McCarthy here. And uh, all the best for his future, his playing career uh, future as well. I think he's going to elevate to a higher level here as well. Liam, we might leave it there. Many thanks for your insights and contributions uh, tonight. As always, I suppose next week we can probably run the rule over the cast. Montpellier top 14 final that could be a very intriguingly poised game on Saturday evening and also running the rule I suppose preview wise in terms of the Ireland the early days of their New Zealand tour but until then uh, Liam thanks very much okay Mark we'll see you then next week good luck thank you for listening to this podcast episode if you liked what you heard in this podcast why not subscribe to the Hawkeye Psychic podcast on either Amazon Spotify YouTube or Twitter platforms you can also follow me at Hawkeye Sidekick on Facebook and Twitter for the latest sporting opinions, articles and reports.